Well, we start our series through the epistle of James this morning. Epistle just means letter, the letter of James in the New Testament. And we begin this morning with, with just the first verse, just James chapter 1, verse 1. You've probably had the experience before where you've heard a song several times, but then if you slow down and you really give that song a listen, if you really give it your full attention, then all of a sudden you're hearing good things in that song, details that you hadn't heard before. There's details you've never noticed. Or it could be a painting that you're looking at or even an old piece of furniture. There's oftentimes these small significant details in things like those if we'll only pay attention. Well, there's a depth to the scriptures that means that every detail has incredible significance, even the parts that we tend to not pay much attention to. So this morning at at this months long study through the book of James, we're going to let the Lord set the book up for us by only looking at James's greeting at the very beginning of the letter. Just the first verse again, James chapter one, verse one, hear the word of the Lord, James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Okay, well, I think we're given at least five significant things to remember as Christians. Five things to remember in this first verse of the book of James. So I'll I'll go through them quickly and then we'll look at them in order. First, you can trust the Bible because the Bible is from Jesus. Second thing to remember, your primary role is a servant of Jesus Christ. Third, your Christian life should be corporate in nature. And then fourth, we're not home yet. And finally, you've been greeted by God because of Jesus Christ. So first, if, uh, if you're newer to the study of the Bible, you might not know this, But the second half of the New Testament (coughs) is made up entirely of letters, letters that were sent by the authors to be distributed among the early Christian churches there in the first century. So the author would send the letter to one local church, they'd read it, and then typically they would pass it along to another church. So listen to the way the Apostle Paul describes this, uh, this process in Colossians 4, verse 16. He says, And when this letter has been read among you, the Christians at Colossae, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So they're passing around these letters. Well, the the book that we'll be looking at for the next few months is a letter written by James and intended to be distributed among those early churches and in God's providence, distributed to other Christian churches throughout the ages which is why we've got this book in our laps close to 2,000 years after it was written. So first things first, who is this author? Verse one says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we've got a little bit of work to do here because there are actually several guys named James who we read about in in the New Testament. Two of them were among the initial 12 disciples of Jesus, those closest men who he gathers around him during his earthly ministry. One of those Jameses was less known, not really even mentioned particularly in the Gospels, at least not zoomed in on. The other was was much more well-known, James, the brother of John. So you remember there's that 
inner circle of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. Well, one of the Jameses we have in the New Testament is that James, prominent figure in the Gospels in particular. The second James is that other disciple, not mentioned much at all. The third James is the father of one of the other disciples, the disciple Judas, not the bad Judas, but another Judas. Again, that not much is mentioned about him. The third James is his father. Well, then the fourth James we have in the New Testament is Jesus's brother. So remember, Mary became pregnant with Jesus when she was a virgin. So the Holy Spirit miraculously produced Jesus in her womb. But after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had other children. So Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. And one of those half-brothers was named James. Listen to Matthew 13, verse 55. This is a group of people that's doubting Jesus' identity. And they say, is not this the carpenter's son? Talking about Jesus. Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So one of Jesus's earthly, fleshly brothers was named James. And it's this James, his brother, that we can be pretty confident wrote this letter. So, so since the author of our letter in verse 1 only describes himself as James, that means he was really well known among the early church. We know that. He would have, if, if it was a lesser known James, he would have had to describe who he was. But he can just say James <coughs> and understand these early Christians in the first century would instantly know who he was. Okay, that rules out the lesser known disciple James, and it rules out the father of Judas. And although it could be the disciple James, the brother of John, it, it seems much more likely that this is the brother of Jesus. And we think that because even though James, the brother of John, was really prominent among the apostles in the gospel stories, in the early Christian church, Jesus's brother pretty quickly became more prominent, especially among the Jewish Christians, because James, the brother of Jesus, became the main pastor at the church in Jerusalem, the first Christian church. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, when James, the brother of John, is martyred, remember that? Herod has him killed. Well, Luke calls him James, the brother of John. So Luke feels the need in Acts 12 to explain who the apostle James, the brother of John, is. So he says James, the brother of John. But in the same chapter, Acts 12, he refers to Jesus, his brother, and there he simply says James. He doesn't feel the need to explain who he is. So that seems to indicate that when the early Christians heard the name James, they defaulted to thinking about the pastor of the Jerusalem church, Jesus' half-brother. <clears throat> and it's pretty incredible that Jesus' brother came to believe in him because initially James had rejected Jesus. John chapter 7 verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So James initially didn't believe in Jesus. He, he rejected his claims of messiahship, but God overcame James's rejection of Jesus. God opened James's eyes and he brought him to faith in Christ. So, so this same brother who had rejected Jesus early in his ministry, that same brother 
ends up in the upper room with the 12 apostles and Mary after Jesus had ascended to heaven. And then, of course, he becomes the pastor of the first Christian church. God can save anyone. So do you have a family member, maybe, who you think would never, ever believe in Jesus? Well, everyone would have thought that about James, too. But God saved him. God can save anyone. So, so that's who we can be confident wrote this letter. James, the brother of Jesus. And we need to notice this because it gets at our first main point from this passage. The first thing our passage would have you as a Christian remember is you can trust the Bible because the Bible is from Jesus. So James, Jesus' brother, he was part of this group of apostles, these men who were chosen by Jesus for the purpose of delivering Jesus's word to the world. This was part of our call to worship this morning, but turn over to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, and listen to the promise Jesus makes to his apostles about what he will do for them and and through them. This is John 14, verse 25. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay, so Jesus knew and he acknowledges here during his earthly ministry, he knows that once he is crucified and raised from the dead, then he was going to ascend to be at God the Father's side until he comes to judge the world and save his people. That's where Jesus is now. He's not walking the earth among us. No, he's at the Father's side. He's in heaven. Okay, so that being the case, how would Jesus' people have access to his word when he isn't here to speak that word in person? Well, the answer is, as he says here in John 14, Jesus would send his Holy Spirit to produce his words through the apostles. Jesus tells these apostles that the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He continues this same conversation a few pages over in John 16, verse 12. He says the same sort of thing. There he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is promising that the spirit will come and will take the word of Jesus and miraculously give it to these apostles. The Holy Spirit produced the word of the Lord through the apostles. And that's why in our congregational reading in Ephesians 2, we have that bit about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So that was the unique group of people through which God produced his word, which is the foundation of the church. But, but you might be wondering, okay, but James wasn't one of those initial 12 apostles. So we just talked about how initially he rejected Jesus during Jesus's earthly ministry. 
But here's the thing, we see this in the New Testament. Jesus always intended for that circle of apostles to be more than just 12 men. So remember, Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus and, and makes him part of the apostolic circle of those who would write God's word. Of course, Paul wasn't with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Je uh, Paul wasn't one of those 12 initial apostles, but he's added to them. He's added to the apostolic circle that would produce God's word. And see, after Jesus' resurrection, his brother James is counted as an apostle as well. Listen to the way Paul describes James in Galatians 1 verse 19. He says, but I saw none of the other apostles except, so he sees one of the apostles. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So James was commissioned by Jesus to be one of these apostles. One of the men who Jesus promised would, by the Holy Spirit, produce God's word. And that's why the book sitting in your lap, that's why the New Testament epistle of James is God's word. And see, that's the way we're supposed to treat the Bible. We're not supposed to treat it like we treat other books with, with simple human authorship. We're supposed to treat the Bible as having divine authority. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He's commending the Thessalonian Christians. This is what he says. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. That's the way we're supposed to read the Bible, not treating it like the simple, mere words of man, but no, these are the words of God. I think all of that is bound up in verse one, when James calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a unique servant of Christ in the fact that Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to do a unique work in his apostles. And Jesus set up that work to happen because he wanted you to have his word. And why is it so important to Jesus that his people have his word? Well, look down at James chapter one, verse 18, what we're told about the word there. Of his own will, God, of his own will, he brought us forth by, how do he bring us forth? How do he produce spiritual life in us? By the word of truth. Look over at chapter one, verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which does what? Which is able to save your souls. So Jesus's word it gets planted inside of us and it, it produces spiritual life and then it leads to salvation. So Jesus wants you to have the spiritual life you need to believe the gospel and to get to heaven one day. And that's why he's been so committed to getting you and me his word. And he did it through James and his other apostles. So you see, you can trust the Bible. You can trust the letter of James because it's from Jesus. And that's really the answer to the question, how can we trust the Bible? Now, there's other factors we could add to that that increase our trust in Scripture. But at bottom, when it's boiled down, when somebody asks you that question, how can you trust the Bible? 
When a non-Christian neighbor or family member or coworker or a fellow student at school asks, why, why do you think the Bible is true? I think the, the best answer, the answer the Bible gives is, I believe the Bible is true because Jesus guaranteed it would be true. And I trust Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who gives us our doctrine of scripture. He just did it in John 14 and 16. He tells us that these human authors through the Holy Spirit will produce his word. Jesus promised that the man who wrote the Bible would write the exact words Jesus wanted written. Listen, you, you can't fully trust the words on cable news but because they're from a sinful and limited commentator. You can't fully trust the words of the State of the Union because they're from a sinful and limited president. You can't fully trust the words of the philosopher or the cultural commentator or, or your friends. They, just like you, are sinful and limited people. But, but Jesus wanted us to have a firm and sure word. And so he made that happen by sending his spirit to produce his word, which is what's sitting in your lap right now. You can trust the Bible because it's from Jesus. Like we're told in verse one, James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But see, James and the other authors of scripture, they aren't Jesus's only servants. No, if you're a Christian, then you are the Lord's servant too. In fact, like we see in our second main point, your primary role is a servant of Jesus Christ. We saw this in our Old Testament reading earlier. What does God call his people to do at bottom? Deuteronomy 10 verse 12, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we are servants of the Lord and the Lord deserves our service. For, for several different reasons, we'll, we'll look at what I think are the three main reasons why the Lord deserves our service. First, God is our creator. In fact, even if you're here and you're not a Christian, God still gave you existence. You would not be if it wasn't for him. Well, that alone means he deserves everyone's full undivided service, doesn't it? And see, if you're here and you're a Christian, then he not only created you, he went further, he also saved you from your sins. And remember that the price for your salvation was the earthly life of Jesus Christ. He gave his life on the cross to pay for your rebellion against God. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul tells us, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So if you're a Christian, then God made you, but then he purchased you. So he kind of doubly owns you, doesn't he? But see, even apart from God saving you, even apart from God creating you, he deserves everyone's service simply because of who he is, simply because of his character. Exodus 15, 11 says, who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness. So God deserves your service because of who he is and because he's your creator and because if you're a Christian, he has saved you. 
1 Peter 2.16 sums it up. Live as servants of God. So as a Christian, while, while you fill several different roles in this life, you're someone's child, maybe you're someone's spouse and parent, maybe an employee or an employer, we're all citizens of a, of a country, your primary role is a servant of Jesus Christ. In fact, just think about the phrase that we're all working to hear at the end of our lives. <clears throat> Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, verse 21, we want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. So just like James, we are servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rest of this letter makes it clear that, that we're responsible to serve Jesus the way he calls us to. We see it even in this chapter, in chapter one. So down in verse 20, we're told to not be angry because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Well, what's being presupposed there is that this is the main thing we should be aiming for, to be righteous in God's eyes. We're supposed to serve him. Verse 27 of chapter one, it tells us to have religion that is pure and undefiled before God. Again, because that's what we're supposed to be aiming for, for God to be pleased with our lives. Your primary role is a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, the question for us is, does our life look like that? Does my life, does your life look like you're primarily a servant of Jesus? In particular, are you serving Jesus above all earthly masters? So there, I don't know how many of you guys watched Lassie, but, uh, but the show about the collie, the dog, right, that was there with the boy. Well, there was a precursor to the, the show that everybody remembers, which was Timmy was the little boy that had Lassie. Well, there was, there was a precursor to that where there was a show before that where it was Jeff, a kid named Jeff. You guys might not know this. And it was, uh, this was all before I was born. There was, uh, it was called Jeff's Collie. Well, there was an episode of Lassie with Timmy where Jeff comes back. And the question before everybody is, what do we do with Lassie? Because here's Jeff and here's Timmy. And they both kind of have rightful claim to Lassie. So what do we do? And in sort of terrifying fashion as a kid, this kind of messed me up a little bit. It was kind of a bad thing. But I think in the, anyway, they put Lassie in between Jeff and Timmy. That's these, that's these adults answer. We're going to put Lassie in between the two of you. You both call the Lassie. Whoever Lassie goes to is the one Lassie should be with because that's the one who Lassie loves more. That is a bad idea. But I, I mean, I guess the grown-ups around that time had bigger fish to fry. Like there was bigger stuff going on in the world, right? And in our country where they just didn't think about maybe this isn't the best idea. But anyway, there it is. They put Lassie in between and uh, Lassie ends up going to Timmy, right? Well, that's, that's kind of the way that our devotion works. So you could set up two different masters on opposite sides. And then here we are in the middle and both of them are calling to us. And we decide which one it is that we're going to go to, right? So this morning, I, my alarm was set extra early because there was a little bit extra I had to do on the CGG class. And so my alarm goes off and I have both masters on either side. I have the master of sleep that says, oh, wouldn't it, wouldn't it feel so good to sleep another half hour? And then I had the master of 
but I'm responsible to this flock and it's not gonna, this lesson isn't going to be all put together if I don't get up. And so praise God, I said no to the master of sleep and I got up and I came here. But you guys know what that's like. You can have masters on either side. They're both calling to you. Who is it you're going to serve? Well, the thing is, we're servants of Christ. So regularly, his word is set up on one side of us and there's another earthly master on the other side and they are both calling to us. So if you've got Jesus's word calling to you on one side and money calling to you on the other side, which way do you go, right? It's tax season. Praise the Lord. I don't want to tempt anybody to sin, but praise God I got our taxes finished this past week. Such a good feeling to have that behind us. There are all sorts of spots in your taxes, especially if your risk for audit is really, really low. There are all sorts of spots where you could lie, right? Where you could get a bigger return. You could pay fewer taxes. A situation like that, the the God of money, the master of money is calling you. But of course, Jesus's word is over here calling you. Which direction do you go? Are you going to be a servant of Christ or not? Or if you've got Jesus's word on one side and the approval of people on the other side, maybe even people you really care about, they're both calling to you. Where do you go? To the fear of man or, or to the fear of the Lord? Or if you've got Jesus's word on one side and physical pleasure on the other side, where do you go? Which one do you listen to? So you, you get the idea. As Christians, we should resolve to obey Jesus's word no matter who the earthly master is on the other side. We, we all know what it's like to be on the clock at work, right? When you're at work, your time isn't your own. You clock in, you're there for the company, they're paying you for your time. You're supposed to use your time for what the company wants to get done. That time belongs to them. Well, as, as creatures and even more as Christians, our time is not our own. We're always on the clock. Your life here in this world You're on the clock for the Lord. But praise God, that's not a burdensome task because Jesus is a good master. You've experienced this. Money, it's a bad master. It will let you down. Physical pleasure, a bad master. Pride, a bad master. Jesus is a good master. He will never let you down. He'll always steer you right. So remember, your primary role is a servant of Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now let's look at the way he describes the recipients of this letter. So he tells us who he is, who is he writing to? Look there in verse one, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Okay, what's the Lord teaching us in these words? Well, our third main point is to remember that your Christian life should be corporate in nature. So James is writing to a group of Christians. It has a plural identity a corporate identity. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now that word dispersion is a Greek word, diaspora. You may have heard that before, diaspora. That means to sow out, to pitch seed if you're a farmer. So he sows the seed, diaspora, to sow out. It it was the term used to describe what happened to God's people in the Old Testament when they were judged and exiled and they had to leave the promised land. They were pitched out like seeds. It's the same word used to describe what happened to the earliest church in Jerusalem that James pastored when when persecution came in Acts chapter 8. You might remember this. Remember Stephen, one of the earliest deacons? He's killed for his faith. He's martyred. This is what we're told, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout diaspora. Same Greek word that's here, dispersion, in our passage. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. See, that was always God's plan, was for the church to get scattered out, to have persecution come so they have to leave, and then they preach the gospel to non-believers in those other areas. God converts people, makes them Christians, and builds up local churches. Well, it's, it's those Christians in those surrounding areas that James is writing to. He's writing to them in the dispersion. But, but what we want to notice right now is, is James addresses these Christians not simply as individuals. He addresses them as a collective group. He says, to the 12 tribes. It's like if a coach is writing a letter to all his players, but he doesn't say, to all my players. He says, to the team. He's addressing them corporately, together. In fact, even though different terms are used, most of the New Testament letters are addressed not to individuals. Some of them are, but most of them addressed to collective groups, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to the churches of Galatia, to the church of the Thessalonians in God. The Christian life is corporate in nature. It's corporate in nature. The Christian life isn't meant to be lived alone, solo like a Lone Ranger Christian. That's not the design. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community, in interconnectedness with a group of other Christians. That's the way the Lord designed the Christian life to take place. So, so remember all the way back to creation. God doesn't just create one person. He creates two. He says it's not good that man should be alone. And then he doesn't just save Noah. He doesn't even just save Noah and his wife. He saves their extended family. And when they get off the ark, his instructions to them are the same as his instructions to Adam and Eve. Multiply. Make more people. When God saves Abraham, he, he promises to, to make out of him uh, a huge family that will be raised up. He says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth and the stars of the sky. And then when God builds his people in the Old Testament, he builds them into 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. The Christian life is corporate in nature. Think of all the metaphors the Bible uses for the church and when he's talking about Christians. So you, as an individual Christian, you're an individual stone in a corporate temple. You're an individual sheep in a corporate flock. You're an individual body part. That's what the word member actually means. A member, like a hand, a foot. You're an individual body part in the body. You're an individual priest in a corporate priesthood. You're an individual citizen in a corporate nature. Like we read in the congregational reading from Ephesians 2, you're an individual member in a corporate household. So see, Christianity, it's meant to be a team sport. And as we get further on in the book of James, we'll, we'll see that really clearly. Fl flip over to chapter 5, if you've got a Bible open. James chapter 5. In chapter 5, we're given a few different commands that simply can't be obeyed if you're on an island by yourself, which again shows the corporate nature of the Christian life. Chapter 5, verse 14, we'll just point out two of these. Chapter 5, verse 14, that's where the sick Christian is told to 
call for the elders of the church. Okay, you can't do that by yourself, can you? Unless you want to look like a crazy person. To call somebody who's not there and then to be on your own. No, you're told to call for the elders of the church. What that presupposes is if you're a Christian, you're supposed to have a set of elders who are responsible for you. The Christian life is corporate in nature. In chapter 5, verse 16, the Lord tells us, confess your sins to one another. So when you're struggling with a particular sin, God tells you, confess that to a fellow Christian. And the, the presumption in Scripture is you'll confess that sin to a Christian who actually has a measure of God-given authority in your life, which is what Jesus talks about in Matthew 18 when it, when it comes to church discipline. So the idea is that we're, we're supposed to make ourselves accountable to a particular group of Christians and pastors who are charged to, to care for us, to pursue us, if we head off the Christian path into unrepentant sin. And when the individual Christian does fall into prolonged unrepentant sin, look at what that fellow member is supposed to do for you. Chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. It's a pretty important task, isn't it? For someone to have their soul saved from death, that's an important task. Well, among other things, that's what corporate Christianity has to offer you. That's what being connected to a body of Christians has to offer you. Your Christian life should be corporate in nature. So, is your Christian life corporate? Take a minute to, to think about it, to assess. One good sign for everybody in this room is you're here this morning. The chief way that Christians get to take advantage of the corporate nature of Christianity is gathering together on the Lord's day, all together, hearing the word preached, worshiping the Lord together, gathering all together in the same room at the same time. So, so be sure that you're doing that on Sunday mornings. And if you're able, come on Sunday nights. Come that first Sunday night of the month. You'll get to do this twice, right? It's a great thing. Is your corporate life or your Christian life corporate in nature? Think about the way you pray. Do you pray not just for yourself and for your own immediate family and extended family? Or do you pray for your fellow church members? your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We, as elders, we, we try to make this as easy as we can by putting together that church directory. You can just go through those pages day by day, pray for an individual member or, or a couple of members. Another one, do you confess sins to fellow church members? That's a good thing to do. That's a command we just read. We'll get there later on in James, but that gets at the corporate nature of the church. So do you do that? Do you confess sins to fellow church members? And listen, we can take some of the mystery out of this. You don't have to set up a meeting to do this. That would be hard and burdensome. We'd do it if the Lord wanted us to. You don't have to do that. I'll tell you what I do. So when I see a pattern of sin in my life, like I saw coming back from Kentucky in the car, I think I mentioned this a few sermons ago, coming back from Kentucky in the car, in the way that I responded to our children in particular. Okay, well, that wasn't just a one-off. I see that sin coming out of my heart every now and then. So I see, okay, I've got a pattern here. So I just message. I don't call Tim and Mark and Charlie and say, hey, let's get lunch together. So, you know, let's figure out time. No, I just message them. And I just say, hey, here's this particular sin. I've seen it crop up a few times. Will you please pray for me? 
Will you pray that the Spirit will work in me to turn me away from this sin and for me to reaffirm my trust in Jesus by being patient with my children, the way that God was patient to me in Christ? So will you pray for that? And maybe will you ask me about it every now and then? So this, is, this isn't rocket science, right? That's an easy thing to do. Call somebody, send an email. But do you confess sins to fellow church members? We, we want to intertwine our lives, especially our spiritual life, with, with other Christians. A pastor named Mark Dever, he says it this way. He says, the Christian life is personal, but it's not private. That's good. The Christian life is personal. We'll all stand before the Lord individually, right? It won't be, okay, Cornerstone Baptist Church, everybody come up front at the judgment. No, we'll stand before him individually. It is personal, but it's not private. And so James can characterize his audience, not just as a bunch of individual Christians, but as a plurality, as a group, as tribes. So remember, your Christian life should be corporate in nature. Okay, but look at how he further characterizes these tribes. He says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And this gets our fourth main point, which is remember, you're not home yet. We talked about this a second ago, that word dispersion. It's getting the idea that the Jerusalem church members were scattered into regions away from home. That idea borrowed from the Old Testament when Israel was sent out of the promised land, right? During the exile. Well, that was the situation of James's hearers and it's our situation. You are not yet in the promised land. I am not yet in the promised land. Listen to Revelation 21, 4. This makes it really clear to us. It tells us heaven will be a place where there's no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. So didn't you experience some kind of pain this past week? Some kind of sadness? This past week, didn't you hear about other people experiencing even more pain than you did, more sadness than you did? That, that alone lets us know we're not in the promised land yet. We're not home yet. And this theme, it comes throughout the rest of the letter. It's, it's why James tells us we can persevere in the midst of suffering in this life. Chapter 1, verse 12 says, we will receive the crown of life. Just talking about our eternal home in the future. It's not here yet but in Christ we will receive it one day. Or at the end of the letter, chapter five, verse seven, he says, be patient therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord. So heaven is not here yet. Jesus has not yet returned. That's good for us to remember. Jesus, Jesus has made no promise that we will have an easy life. In fact, it's sort of the opposite. He hasn't promised we'll have health. He hasn't promised that we'll be rich, at least not monetarily. This is great, but over in chapter 2, verse 5, we are told God promises to, to make us rich in something, but it's not money. We're rich in faith, he says. That's the most valuable asset for the Christian, is our trust in Christ. But in terms of what's going to happen in this world, we're not given any promise about ease or comfort. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 2, it's assumed that as Christians we will meet various trials. But, and this is one of the central messages of the Bible, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. So this life, the difficulty that we face here, heaven will make it worth it. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, I wonder if you think about this much, that there's another life coming after this one. 
And there's only two destinations. So there's either eternal bliss, better days than you can even imagine, or eternal judgment, worse days than you can even imagine. And of course, what makes the difference is whether you trust in Christ alone to cover your sins. The really good news is that as James 4, 8 says, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. That's our message for you. If, if you don't know what you think about Jesus, if you're not a Christian, draw near to God through Christ and he will draw near to you. If you come to the cross, he will cover your sins. So come talk to me about that if, if you're interested in thinking about that more, becoming a, becoming a Christian. But, but for us as Christians, we need to realize that, that we're just travelers. We're not home yet, right? We're just moving through. When we first moved to Maine, we, we rented a house for a while while we looked for one to buy. And while we were renters, you've probably been in these shoes, we didn't make any major repairs. We didn't do any major work on the house, any big upgrades. No, because we knew our days there were numbered. Well, the Christian, our life should look like we're renters and not like we're buyers. So just think about the alternative. Think of what it looks like for this life to be one you think you've purchased, that you're living for this life. Just think about the way your non-Christian friends talk. For them, physical health and family are everything, aren't they? Haven't you heard people say that exact phrase basically verbatim? Well, at least you have your health and your family. Well, that's all they have. But they're thinking about this life like it's going to remain. They're operating like homeowners. So for us as Christians, do we talk different? Do we think different? Do, do you treat your money that way, like you're just renting here? Do you treat your time and your energy that way? Do, do you live your life like a renter, like a sojourner, like we saw in the Old Testament reading earlier? Well, James reminds his readers they're in dispersion, they're in exile. So remember that we're not home yet. Well, the final point, it's, it's the most important one. It's only represented in our passage with one word. It's the final word of verse one. James tells his audience, greetings. Now, it's not an unusual way to, to open a letter. James, he's, he's welcoming his readers at the beginning of the letter. He's welcoming them on behalf of the Lord. And it's our final point this morning. Remember that you've been greeted by God because of Jesus. So quickly, let, let's remember who we are. Look over at chapter 2, verse 10. James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. Okay, so it takes one sin to break God's command. And once you've broken God's command, you're a command breaker. You're a law breaker. You've become a rebel. Okay, that's all of us. Even this morning, even while we've been sitting, this is incredible, even in the corporate worship of God, all of us have sinned. It'll continue to happen until the day you die or Christ returns. We are rebels. So just think about our first four points. The truth is rebels like us don't deserve to have Jesus's word that he gives to us through the apostles. We don't deserve to even serve Jesus. We don't deserve to stoop down and untie a sandal. You remember the way John the Baptist talked about it? We don't deserve a group of spiritual brothers and sisters around us to care for us. We certainly don't deserve heaven. So, so how in the world do sinners like us get these things? Well, it's because of the idea we see in James 5 verse 11, 
where James says God is compassionate and merciful. He sent his son to take the penalty of your law-breaking on his shoulders and to pay for your sin and to offer you full and final forgiveness for your sins through your connection to Christ. So it's just like we heard in the congregational reading. Ephesians 2.17, Christ Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through, whom, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You've been greeted by God because of Jesus. So the God of the universe who should send you straight to hell, he, he's done the exact opposite. He's made you his child. There is nothing more incredible than that. And so as you travel through a difficult and, and broken world in your sinful nature, the Lord is calling us to, to remember these things. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray together. And Father, we are so thankful for the good news of the gospel. It's, it's incredible that, that you greet us. You should do the exact opposite. Our sin merits the exact opposite, but you haven't sent us away into judgment. You have welcomed us in Christ. We're so thankful, Father, for Jesus. We're so thankful, Father, that being greeted to you in his name brings with it all of these other blessings. Father, would you help us to be faithful believers? Would you help us to be more and more transformed by the gospel so that we are serving Jesus faithfully? We are living the life corporately, the Christian life, caring for other believers, having them care for us. That, that we are walking through this life, not like home buyers, but, but home renters, realizing that we're just sojourners and aliens moving through. Father, would you help us to appreciate your word and to pursue the word of Christ? Father, do these things in us for the good of your kingdom. Take a moment now, continue to pray individually. Pray individually and silently that the Holy Spirit would...